Spring is a great time of year to do some cleaning around the house and clean up your finances. And something else that you can do for your family this spring is shopping for life insurance with Policy Genius as part of your financial planning for the year. Getting life insurance today means you'll have peace of mind so that if something were to happen to you, your family can cover expenses, things like mortgage payments, credit card payments, car loans, or even college costs. I have a wife and two kids, with a third on the way, by the way, and business partners that all depend on my income. So I needed life insurance and Policy Genius made that so incredibly easy. And with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. One of my favorite ways to invest is real estate, but not everyone wants to handle tenants and toilets. Enter Fundrise. They make it easy to invest in real estate with their flagship fund. Now, as always, you always have to carefully consider the investment objectives and risks of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. But right now, demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. And the Fundrise flagship fund plans on going on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with just as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash PFP. As always, carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash PFP. That's fundrise.com slash PFP. This is a paid advertisement. On this episode of the Personal Finance Podcast, we're going to talk to Katie Gaddy about how to pay no taxes in early retirement. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Personal Finance Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew, founder of MasterMoney.co, and today on the Personal Finance Podcast, we're going to talk to Katie Gaddy about how to pay no taxes in early retirement. If you guys have any questions, make sure to hit us up on Instagram, TikTok, at MasterMoneyCo, and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever podcast player you love listening to this podcast on. And if you want to help out the show, leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever podcast player you love listening to this podcast on as well. Today, we are talking to Katie about how to pay no taxes in early retirement. And I am really, really excited for this episode. If you don't know who Katie is, she is also the host of the Money with Katie show. And she does an amazing job at doing deep dives when it comes to personal finance. But in addition, she's also really relatable on how she started to build wealth and how she started to build her generational wealth and how she started to build generational wealth. And we're going to get into some of that today. In addition, we're going to go through the process of how to set up your accounts 
in early retirement so that you can pay no taxes. And some of the pros and cons of having brokerage accounts, we're going to talk about 401ks, IRAs, all those different things. In addition, we're going to break down the mortgage fee fiasco. And if you haven't seen this or you didn't see me post it on Instagram, TikTok, or some of the other places we've been talking about this, inside of that mortgage fee issue, there's been an image circulating around the internet that we're going to dive into that basically states that people with higher credit scores may have to pay more fees when they go and get a mortgage. And we're going to talk about why this is not not true. And we're going to dive deep into that. And then lastly, we're going to talk about Ramit Sethi's new Netflix episode, How to Get Rich, and why that's so important for a personal finance show to be trending on Netflix. So I am really excited for you guys to hear this episode. I don't want to take any more of your time. So without further ado, let's welcome Katie to the Personal Finance Podcast. So Katie, welcome to the Personal Finance Podcast. Thanks for having me, Andrew. I'm really happy to be here. We are really excited to have you here because we actually pulled our audience probably at the beginning of the year and they asked which guest do you actually want us to have on this podcast? And you were one of the top requested guests to come on. Really? So I'm sure our audience is going to be really excited too. So this is going to be really, really fun. So, <laughs> Oh my uh, gosh, that's so sweet. Exactly. And I'm so excited to kind of talk through some of this stuff because I think you're a really deep thinker when it comes to personal oh. finance. And that is something that I truly, truly have come to appreciate. And I think it's very, very cool. Some of the stuff that you're putting out too. So we're going to talk about some of that today. But first, before we dive in, can you tell us a little bit about what you do and the backstory with Money with Katie? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have a feeling it's probably similar to your own backstory. But I think for me, Money with Katie started because I was trying to solve my own problem, which was I now have this corporate job. I have this income that as someone that had formerly only ever made $12 an hour felt like, oh my God, I'm a Kardashian. I was making $52,000 and it's like, wow, I'm going to be able to save money so effortlessly. This is going to be fantastic. And womp, womp, a few months pass. And I'm like, oh, uh, yeah, the whole not having a proactive strategy thing not working out for me. So I didn't really know where to start. But fortunately, there is such a wealth of information about personal finance online. And I kind of just started asking around, getting some recommendations from friends. I started listening to Choose FI. So my introduction to personal finance was very hardcore. Not that Brad and Jonathan are hardcore, but just that FIRE, financial independence, retire early, is a very extreme version of personal finance. So I kind of, I always like to joke that it's like I wanted to take up rock climbing. And then I was like, and then I hired Alex Honnold to teach me. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, you just go straight into the deep end. So then I kind of have over the years adapted that philosophy to more fit my own personality and beliefs and what works for me. But I, after the course of learning about it for a few years, just really recognized the power of financial information. And it became super clear to me that if you can master this stuff early in life, you will truly change the trajectory of your entire life and the quality of life that you're able to live night and day. And it was just amazing because a lot of the changes were not that extreme. You didn't have to make six figures. You didn't have to only eat rice and beans. I mean, they were small tweaks in a lot of cases and just little optimizations here and there that had disproportionate parabolic effects. And I really wanted to share that with people and particularly other young women, because it felt to me that there were a lot of other young people and young women that I was friends with that were kind of in the same boat. They were making enough money to make progress, but they didn't really know what step to take next. And that's really how Money with Katie came to be. 
And that's an amazing story because I think going along those lines, mine's very similar in the same way where I kind of started, I'm a little older than you. So I started with Mr. Money Mustache and kind of grew into Choose FI also, which they're absolutely (laughs) amazing, which is kind of like the same path where you just go all in at the very beginning there Mm -hmm. and then develop mine kind of over that same time frame. But I think what you are doing is you really dive deep into some of this stuff and you really Mm -hmm. go deep, which is really, really amazing for a lot of people. They want to go deeper into some Mm -hmm. of this. And I think that's what you really are doing well right now, which is absolutely amazing. And one big thing that you talk about is you have an episode called How to Pay No Taxes in Early Retirement. I think this is a fantastic episode. I think everybody who is listening to this podcast needs to go listen to that after they hear this. And you kind of go through how you can actually reduce the amount of money that you're paying in taxes in retirement. As we go through this, the first thing we kind of have to structure is figure out how what accounts we need to utilize in order to do this. And you talk about having the taxable brokerage account, which for people listening who don't know what that is, a taxable brokerage account is just when you open up your account anywhere, Fidelity, Vanguard, or wherever else it is, that's just the standard brokerage account that you can open. Then we have our Roth accounts, which obviously grow tax-free. And then we have our pre-tax accounts, IRAs, 401ks is how we can kind of set this up and think through this a little bit. So can you kind of talk through how we can set these accounts up before we kind of dive into how this is going to work? Yeah, totally. So I feel like it is a required preface here or a disclaimer that This is, in my mind, kind of like the super mega nerd, you want to be as optimized as possible, never pay a cent in taxes in retirement version of events. But if you're like, I'm not trying to get it, you know, perfectly fine-tuned and locked in, I just kind of want to have some tips and tricks along the way, you can kind of take this as far as you want. So if someone's already overwhelmed by the sounds of this, just know you don't have to execute it perfectly to see the benefit. So yes, you've hit on the major high points, which are we need a taxable account, we need Roth accounts, and we need pre-tax accounts. The reason we need all three tax statuses is because it gives us maximum flexibility when we are performing a drawdown later in life. So the funny thing about the way the U.S. tax system works that I'm not sure how familiar your listeners are. They're probably pretty dang familiar with the U.S. tax system by this point, but the U.S tax code taxes different types of income differently. And there are different thresholds over which you're going to start to see the taxes go up. And so when you have taxable money, Roth money or tax-free money and tax deferred or pre-tax money, you can kind of combine them in a strategic way such that you are avoiding crossing over any of the thresholds that would then trigger taxes to begin or to rise. So that's kind of the overarching thought process that goes into this, but it is an amazing structure for someone that does not have earned income from other sources. So typically this is going to be early retirees, or I think real estate would still, if you had real estate income, it would still work because I know some real estate income you don't have to pay taxes on, but I'm not as clear on real estate income tax. So I think this is like, if you are just someone that is only living off of investments, this should work well. Exactly. And I think that is one of the big keys to this. And you hit the nail on the head is the word flexibility, because when it comes Mm -hmm. to personal finance, we talk about this all the time in this podcast, you want to be as flexible as you possibly can with some of this stuff so that you have all the options available to you. And that's kind of what having these three buckets allows you to do between Mm -hmm. these three accounts. And we're going to talk about why it's important to have all these three accounts here in a second. So it kind of will come full circle for people. But at the same time, you nailed it. It's that flexibility that you really want to have. So in order to achieve this, and we've talked about this on this podcast once before, but we're going to kind of dive even deeper on this is you want to do something called a Roth conversion ladder. So can you Mm -hmm. explain how the Roth conversion ladder works and then maybe some of the tips that we can kind of use to utilize this? 
Yeah, definitely. So a Roth conversion ladder is a fancy technique and we'll break down each component of this. So there's two pieces. There's the Roth conversion and then there's the ladder component. We're going to set the ladder on the back burner. We're just going to focus on the Roth conversion. The Roth conversion is how you take pre-tax tax deferred money, AKA the money that you've been contributing to your traditional 401k and how you turn it into Roth money. Now, if I were to do this today in my current tax bracket with my earned income, my husband and I both work, right? We are in our peak earning years. So if I were to take money in that traditional 401k and try to convert it to Roth right now, I would pay a really heavy tax burden on that conversion because it basically just gets stacked on top of all your other income and hits that top marginal tax rate. Not ideal. However, we know that if you are already early retired, well, you don't have any earned income. And not only do you not have any earned income, you still get your standard deduction. So for singles in 2023, your standard deduction is $13,850 per year. And for married filing jointly, it's $27,700. This is a very powerful tool that we're going to utilize for our Roth conversion in this hypothetical because that standard deduction effectively just wipes that income off the top of your income. So it helps when you're earning money, right? But it really helps when you're trying to do Roth conversions and you have no other earned income. So let's say my husband and I this year, you know, Jan 1, we have quit our jobs. We have no earned income this year. What we would do is we would take that $27,700 amount out of a traditional account and we would convert it to Roth. Now, by doing so, we have effectively used our standard deduction in a year where we have no other earned income to get a free Roth conversion. We're taking money that went into an account tax-free, grew tax-free, and now we're converting it to tax-free withdrawal eligibility by using the standard deduction for free, which is pretty powerful. And I think one of the coolest little loopholes that still exists out there for normal people to be able to leverage. Most tax loopholes only work for super rich people. So like the fact that your normal person can take advantage of this is great. And so once we've got that standard deduction, you know, Roth conversion completed, we just have to wait for it to settle. So this is kind of the second half of the equation where, all right, we've made the conversion, we've paid no taxes on it, we now have this chunk of Roth money, but we have to wait five years to access that money. It's just baked into the rule that you have to let Roth conversions settle for five years before you can touch them. But the magic here is that I'm 28, right? So someone might be thinking, how are you going to do this in a 401k? You're 28. You're not 59 and a half. Well, we know that any money that is considered the cost basis in a Roth IRA, the money that you put into the Roth IRA, you can take that out whenever. That's chill, right? Because you've already paid taxes on it. The IRS is like, cool, you want to touch that, do your thing. Wouldn't recommend touching it early, but you could if you wanted to. In the process of completing a Roth conversion, we have now turned that standard deduction size chunk of our 401k into the cost basis in a Roth IRA. So after those five years, when it settles, now that money is yours to have. You can withdraw it, you can use it, you can let it sit there and grow, it doesn't matter. But now you've kind of subverted the age limit situation or the age minimum situation by completing the Roth conversion. So the Roth conversion does a lot of things for us as early retirees. 
Now, I know that's a lot. To kind of close the loop here, the latter aspect just refers to the fact that you're going to do this every year. So every single year, you're going to convert your standard deduction sized chunk. And over time, that 401k or IRA, the traditional account is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Your Roth, you know, stockpile is going to get higher and higher and higher. And theoretically, you are paying little to no taxes on any of those conversions. Starting in year six, you can use your first conversion from year one, so on and so forth. And this is just such a beautiful strategy for people who are interested in financial independence and early retirement because you can utilize that standard deduction as your guideline and then convert mm-hmm. that money over and do this Roth conversion ladder. Now, the key here is a lot of people are asking this question. When we did this episode the first time, this was the biggest question that we got back was mm-hmm. if you're going to wait that five year period, because you have to wait five years, obviously, when you put that money into the Roth IRA, it's just the IRS rules. It's what you have to do. You have to let that money cool off is an easy way to say it. Then when you have that period there within those first five years, of retirement, how do you actually live on some of your investments? Do you look at other accounts or how do you actually work through that is one of the biggest things. And how does the taxable brokerage account kind of factor into this? Totally. So I think this is where we get into the world of you can be as optimized as possible and really stay super closely to this no taxes thing, which is one thing that we'll talk about. Or you could have part-time income from somewhere and still the total of like your part-time income and this conversion added together is still probably going to be a lot smaller of a tax burden than what you're probably earning right now working full-time and like really trying to ascend to get your income as high as possible because in early retirement, you're just trying to make enough that you can support your lifestyle. You're not trying to save additional money, which obviously is going to make it a little bit easier. So like we said, there's a spectrum here of flexibility and optimization. You can really take it wherever you want. But I think if you're really trying to go hardcore, this is where the taxable brokerage account comes in and our long-term capital gains tax brackets. So I consider this a bit of an art and a science because the science is very clear that these tax advantaged accounts are going to give you the biggest bang for your buck. But where the art comes in is that Like you said, Andrew, we really value flexibility. We need flexibility, particularly in years one through five when we can't touch the tax advantage stuff yet. So this is where your taxable brokerage account comes into play and why it is still important to fund one when you are in that accumulation phase, why you want a healthy taxable brokerage account. So when you are leveraging your standard deduction, well, it's kind of for all of the entire time you're converting that 401k, but especially in years one through five, you're going to be using that 13850 if you're single or 277 if you're married for the conversion. But you get to stack the long-term capital gains tax brackets on top of that. So we know that if you are drawing down capital gains, you're going to pay 0% on the first, I think, 42K if you're single. And I want to say it's like up to 89 or 90K now if you're married. I don't know the exact numbers, but it's a lot. Like most people can probably, as long as it's just you or you and a spouse and you're not supporting a brood of children, most people can probably live on $90,000 of capital gains per year, right? And so we can back into the type of math that we would need to tell us how large a taxable brokerage account would have to be to spin off those types of gains every year. But the important thing is that it doesn't have to be able to support that kind of spending forever. It just has to get you to bridge the gap basically until the Roth conversions and your original Roth IRA from when you were working and contributing can kind of take over. And the longer it can support you, the better, because that gives those Roth dollars more and more time to compound tax-free. But 
really it's kind of a numbers game at that point of how old are you and are you retiring? And then when do you turn 59 and a half? And when are you really going to probably start looking at other things like your original Roth IRA to support you? But I would say it's you definitely want enough in that taxable brokerage account to support years one through five and then any supplemental spending beyond that, uh, which really, I guess, is just the difference between the Roth conversion amount and what you're spending on an annual basis. So the less you spend, the easier it is. But I know that that's not everybody has like lean fire aspirations. I personally have fat fire aspirations. Same here. And that mine kind of developed over time where I was lean fire very early on. And then it just kind of went straight to fat fire, (laughs) which is a very interesting thing, which for most people, if the goalpost moves, that's okay. It happens. It's one of the things Mm -hmm. that you kind of have to think through. So this is a beautiful, beautiful thing because that taxable brokerage, if you can utilize those long-term capital gains, you really have a lot of money that you can play with here Mm -hmm. in this situation. And in addition, if you need to work or you can do something like barista fire, where you do something Mm -hmm. you enjoy, maybe you love yoga or you teach yoga for that time frame, Mm -hmm. where you can do something that you love. And at the same time, still be able to kind of reap the rewards of financial freedom while doing something you love. And if you're someone who is kind of getting close to this time frame and you're thinking through, hey, I did not really save enough into my taxable brokerage account to bridge this five years. Well, if you have something like an HSA and you have some qualified medical expenses that you can utilize, that's a third option that you have available to you where you can kind of withdraw that money if you've saved those qualified medical expenses. A lot of people in their younger years don't have a ton of qualified medical expenses, but if you do, that's another option that you have available to you to kind of bridge this gap if you don't want to grow that HSA long term. So that's a third option that you can also have available. I would also add one other thing, too, is that even if you're not using all of the money that even if the top of the zero percent capital gains tax bracket, like maybe you can withdraw 90K because you're married, you only need 50K still withdraw all 90k get your full 0% capital gains and then reinvest what you're not using because it'll just raise the cost basis on those investments so there's another little hack there absolutely that's a great ad as well i would definitely do that if you are kind of in this situation that is a perfect thing to add in there so one piece that i want to talk about here too is if you're like me you know i have accounts all over the place and i have way too many yeah. accounts i test out accounts for people to kind of talk through some of them and and kind of go through that whole thing but when we're in fire financial independence we want to kind of simplify our lives a little bit more mm-hmm. so we can have more flexibility, obviously, at the same time. So is there something that you recommend when it comes to kind of simplifying here? Like, do you want to just have one Roth, one IRA, or how do you kind of mm. think through that? That's a really good question. I am similar in that I also, <laughs> because I'm always like, ooh, I want to try out this brokerage or I want to see what this brokerage's sign-up process is like, so I'm going to open this account with them. But I tend to think about it, like, especially when I kind of project these fantasies onto my future. I'm like, all right, what I'm probably going to try to do is for both my husband and I have those three standard buckets where we're going to have, we'll probably each have a rollover IRA because obviously once you're leaving work, he has a TSP because he's in the military. I have a 401k because I'm in the private sector, but you'll roll over those accounts into IRAs that you were managing. So having one kind of pre-tax bucket and Hopefully, you will be able to consolidate if you've got several IRAs laying around or several pre-tax buckets from previous jobs that are kind of sitting there, solo 401k, SEP IRAs. It's helpful to kind of get it all in one place just for simplicity's sake, like you said. I would say the one exception is that you probably want two Roth IRAs because you want a Roth bucket that represents the money that you had been contributing throughout your entire career that is 
effectively not Roth conversions, but just straight up Roth contributions from the jump, because that's the account that you're probably going to use last in your life. Like once you've exhausted everything else, or maybe when you turn 65, I'm making this up, you decide, hey, I've had that Roth IRA compounding for decades. It is a gargantuan and I want to buy a new dream home and I need 300 grand for a down payment. Well, you don't want to declare $300,000 in income in a single year. So you're probably not going to want to sell that out of a 401k or a taxable account. But if you have a Roth IRA that's worth a million dollars, that's a pretty good place to then take a $300,000 one-time distribution because you're not going to pay taxes on that. So I would kind of think about setting that Roth IRA aside and then opening a new Roth IRA for those conversions once you start doing them, because then it's just going to be a little bit easier to track them because they'll be separate in one account and you'll not have that kind of like mingled money situation happening. But yes, ideally, I think to simplify them where you can group accounts together or combine them by their tax status, the easier time you're going to have managing your overall asset allocation too. And obviously that's going to be you know, per person. So you can't have a joint IRA. Yeah, you can't have a joint IRA. So both people in the couple, assuming they both worked or were contributing, are probably going to have their own I would say that's four accounts total, right? If you were to do as much consolidating as possible for each and then eight between you. Absolutely. I completely agree in that situation too. To have those two Roths, just to compartmentalize what you're doing. One's kind of for that wealth building portion there. And then one is just to draw down, just to make it way, way easier. Otherwise, you're going to have yeah. to figure out and do a bunch of math and spreadsheets and stuff like that. And for most people, they don't want yeah. to do that at all. <laughs> so to kind of bring all this together, if anybody is listening to this and they're like, well, I would love to have an example available to this. Katie's episode on this has an example. She does a great mm -hmm. example there. So if you want to go listen to that, we'll Thank link you. it up down in the show notes below so that you can check that out as well. And you can kind of go through that example because I think that's a great way to kind of illustrate and bring all of this together so that people can kind of see how this works. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. And if you need to hire, you need Indeed because Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors. And they have a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. So ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash personal finance. Just go to indeed.com slash personal finance right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's indeed.com slash personal finance. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now is a great time of year to get your finances in order. And no matter what your financial goals are this year, when you use Chime's online checking account, you can cross all those financial to-dos off your list. Chime's online checking account has tons of benefits that millions of members love, like fee-fee overdraft up to $200. Plus, get paid up to two days early with direct deposit, all while managing your money on the go 24-7. And you get access to over 60,000 ATMs. So start building your credit and open a Chime checking account with at least $200 qualifying direct deposit to get started. Get started at Chime.com PFP. That's Chime.com PFP. 
Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank, NA, or Stride Bank, NA, members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Early access to direct deposit funds depends on payer. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. One of the hardest things about managing your money is figuring out where it's all going. And most of us are trying to save for several goals at once, which can feel like a daunting task to see if you're on track or even on pace to accomplishing your goals. But there is a tool that makes it so much easier and it's called Monarch Money. They help you track your money flow without taking a ton of time and energy. And Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. And you can invite them with an extra account with their own login at no extra cost to collaborate with you. And Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. You can create custom budgets, set notifications, and you can set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications. And after trying Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com PFP. That's M-O-N- A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash P-F-P for your extended 30-day free trial. The key to winning in any business is making sure you have the right business partner. An example is Procter & Gamble or Ben & Jerry. But what about the perfect partners when it comes to growing your business? That's you and Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to, did we just hit a million dollars stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. And most people know one of your biggest struggles when it comes to starting an online business is finding new customers, and Shopify can help you do that. And what I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. So sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash PFP, all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash PFP now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash PFP. So Katie, I want to shift gears here because you did a great deep dive on the mortgage fee fiasco. And we did a question Mm. on uh, TikTok and Instagram kind of talking about this. And a lot of people started to freak out and say, I'm going to tank my credit score. Here's all these different things and scenarios that they were kind of thinking through. So I kind of want to lay this out for people. And it's not actually what it looks like. And that's kind of the key to to know about this. So I'm going to kind of describe this image if anybody hasn't seen it yet. And then we can kind of dive in on some of the specifics here for it. So there's an image that came out. It looks like it was from Fox News and it's a new mortgage fee structure. And it says 620 FICO score gets a 1.75% fee discount and a 740 FICO score pays a 1% fee. So obviously, if you look at this at the surface, you're thinking Mm -hmm. to yourself, well, why do I even work hard to build up this credit score and have good credit and all this available? But obviously, this cannot be true. This is not one of those things where it's actually not what it looks like on the surface. So can you kind of dive into some of the specifics on this and why it may not be true? Yeah, man, this was crazy because I remember when I first saw the screen grab, I was like, what in the hell is this? I was like, there is no way because just to kind of set the stage, I mean, credit scores as a mechanism for determining how expensive it is for you to borrow money, that's in place to protect the lender, right? The lender is not going to extend capital more cheaply to someone that it deems a riskier borrower. That doesn't make any sense. So 
right away, you know, something is not quite right. But I think the reason this freaks so many people out is because when you buy a home and you particularly when you take out money to buy a home, as most of us do, you have to take out a mortgage. That is one of the most complex financial transactions that is considered super commonplace and super normal, but it's very complicated. And I think when people see percentages, they immediately start going to, oh, this is my interest rate. So if I'm taking this at face value, that means people with a lower credit score are getting a discount on their interest rate that's 1.75% and I have a higher credit score, so I'm going to pay 1% more. Well, how much sense does that make? Absolutely none, right? But it's referring to the loan level price adjustment fees. So this is something that kind of came out of 2008, which as we all know, very risky lending environment. The origins of the ninja loan where really anyone with a pulse could walk in and be like, I want a house. They'd be like, here, have a million dollars. So that was the environment in which these fees were born that basically adjusts the interest rate that you're going to pay by, I don't know, between 25 and 250 basis points, we'll say. So it's not insignificant, but it's also nowhere near the most impactful part of your loan and the interest rate that you're going to get. So anyway, all of that background out of the way. What happened was Sally Mae basically has a chart that you can look up that it's, you know, the rows going across are credit score ranges. And then the columns going down, these are the fees that you are going to pay in addition to the interest rate that you're going to get from this lender based on how much you are putting down. So if you look at that top row for 780 and above, they have by far the lowest fees. If you are a 780 or above borrower under these new rules and you put 20% down, your fee went down. You're going to pay less now than you were before. If you're putting 25% down, you're going to pay zero in these new fees. So that group 780 and above generally benefited. If you look at the very bottom row, which I want to say is like 639 and below, they are paying by far the highest fees. In some cases, fees that are 10 times as high as their high credit friends. And then everyone in the middle, it kind of is this graduated system where the lower your score, the more you're going to pay, the higher your score, the less you're going to pay. What got everyone riled up and the reason why it became this thing of like, oh, higher scores now have higher fees is because for like one subset, I think it's probably like high 600s to low 700s, their fee little add-on incrementally went up by like 25 basis points. And then the fees for some of the lower credit borrowers incrementally went down. But the absolute fees are still much, much higher for the lower credit borrowers. So the kind of conclusions and the jokes that people were drawing about, well, shit, I'm not going to pay off any of my cards. I'm not going to, I mean, I'm going to tank my credit score because I'm going to pay a lower fee. Not the case. You are still very much incentivized to have at least a 780 and to put more down than less. However, I see why people are frustrated because if you are a, we'll say maybe you're 25 and you've been saving for a long time, you're going to put 10% down on your first house and you have a 700 credit score, your fee incrementally went up. So that doesn't feel good. And I completely understand why people are upset about that. But at the end of the day, these are fees around the margins. They're not going to, in my mind, meaningfully impact affordability for anyone, even the people that this is intended to help. And I think in a perfect world, the question that 
I'm asking when I'm looking at this is like, hey, let's make sure that we're not losing the forest for the trees here because we know the lending environment that these fees were introduced in and we're not in it anymore. If we're really trying to meaningfully impact affordability, is it time to revisit these fees in the first place? Like, should there still be loan level price adjustment fees for first time homeowners that have scores above 700? Like, maybe not, but it's been an interesting dynamic to watch play out. That's for sure. Exactly. And that's kind of what it bakes down to is it's just a marginal difference. And for most people, they don't even fall into that category. And that marginal Mm -hmm. difference just really is not a big deal for a lot of people. And the fees overall are kind of what the big deal actually is. And I think they probably need to reevaluate how that's going to happen, how long that'll take. We don't know. But Mm -hmm. that's one of those things. If they really want that affordability to be available, then you got to make the adjustment on some of those fees. So not everybody shares passion about personal finance like you and I do. I deep dive into Warren Buffett's, you know, letters every single year for funsies. Um, So like it's one of those things that, you know, you and I probably, you know, we love doing this kind of stuff. But for everybody else who doesn't love this stuff, if you go read through those mortgage documents, I mean, it's not really that fun of a read for most people. So and, you know, you took (laughs) the time to kind of dry. (laughs) It is. It really is. But, you know, you took the time to dive in there. I read through them all as well. And it's one of those things that if people aren't interested in the topic, how can they kind of navigate between some of this stuff so that they can avoid some of these mistakes like tanking their credit score because they saw one graphic image online? Totally. It's a great question. My husband says this all the time, and I think he's absolutely right, that the news in general, it doesn't just tell you how to think about certain things, but it tells you what to think about. It tells you what's important. And I think it's important to be skeptical of that and to remember the incentive structure at play with popular media on both sides of the aisle, right? Eyeballs, clicks, outrage. I think they've done studies that like news that makes you angry is the best for their business. So anything that could be construed as negative or unfair or unjust is always going to be a headline. And I think in cases like this, common sense goes a really, really long way. Now, In this case, there was a kernel of truth that certain fees were going to be relatively lowered and certain fees were going to be relatively higher. But having the common sense and the kind of the distance from it to step back and go, now, wait a minute, though. Does it really make sense that my high credit score is going to get me a worse interest rate than someone that has a low credit? Well, no, probably not. So whether or not that means you are going to sit down and like read through the documentation and see how it's actually going to affect you. Or that means you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to cross this bridge when and if I get to it. You know, if you already have a 30 year fixed rate mortgage, this doesn't impact you at all. And like, you shouldn't lose sleep over it. If you're taking out a loan next week, yeah, you might want to look up the chart and be like, all right, how is this going to impact my particular situation? Is this going to impact affordability for me at all? But I do think it's always helpful to come at things with a bit of a cynical lens. I feel like there's been a lot of instances like this recently from both sides where I remember there was another thing where it was like, ah, millennials are all living at home because they're buying luxury handbags. And I was like, bro, that does not pass the sniff test. There has got to be more to that story (laughs) than what is running in all these major newspapers. And sure enough, you look into the data and it's like, oh no, not at all. The subset of millennials who are living at home and the subset of very, very wealthy millennials that are buying all these luxury handbags. This is this Venn diagram is two completely separate circles. (laughs) Like these are not the same group, but 
again, anything that's going to spark outrage, feel unfair, kind of so dissemination, like those are the things that drive clicks. And so just generally, I don't want to say general distrust because that's kind of overly cynical and harsh, but I think just like a healthy level of skepticism and well, hey, let me like look into that a little bit deeper if I think it's going to impact me. That goes a really long way. It truly does. And I agree with you to kind of look at it from a a sinful lens in terms of most situations, especially when it comes to the news, like on TV and stuff like that, where uh, you really just want to focus on the things that you can control and what truly impacts you. And outside of that, like you said, it just doesn't really matter if it doesn't impact you directly at this point in time. If it comes up later in the future, then you can kind of look into it and kind of see what's going on there. But at the same time, you just really want to look at it from a a different lens and make sure that you're actually kind of doing some of the due diligence there. I mean, like, That's not to say I think it's extremely important that the American citizens hold politicians feet to the fire and that we have these conversations and that we're politically engaged and that we care about systemic issues and try to change them. Absolutely. But when it comes to the psychological impacts of self-efficacy and feelings that you have control over your own life, individual solutions can be very, very powerful. And I think like if a friend came to you and said, hey, man, I'm really having a hard time. I'm in a rut. I'm struggling. Like, would you say, well, you know, the election's not for three more years. So hang in. No, of course not. Like, you're not going to tell him to wait until you're going to say, well, hey, like, are you sleeping enough? How are you eating? Are you exercising? Are you getting enough sunlight? How's work going? Have you tried to talk to somebody? You're going to immediately start trying to help them find things that can individually help them. And I think that that's the same attitude that we kind of have to take with these types of things where immediately when I'm looking at this chart, the takeaway that I have is, all right, I got to keep it above 780 if I'm going to borrow money and I got to put at least 20% down and then this doesn't impact me at all. It's not negative for me at all. That's the arena of control that I can exert over the situation. I'm not taking out a mortgage anytime soon because have you seen the interest rates? Exactly. That's not happening. But like in this particular instance, if that is your situation, I think we overlook sometimes just how much psychologically simpler it is to be like, what can I control and how can I make those changes and then just move on and focus on more important things? Exactly. And I think that's the key. I like that term arena of control. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the key there when you're kind of looking through this as well as just what kind of impacts you directly, but also kind of diving deeper. And if it doesn't pass the smell test when you're looking at it, it just doesn't make sense for some reason. Mm -hmm. That's kind of an indication. Maybe you should dive a little deeper and kind of look into it as you go forward there. So another thing that you did recently is you went to Ramit's How to Get Rich premiere party. And oh, yeah. this is a really cool thing that you got to do because Ramit has a major impact on my financial philosophies now. He was one, Same. obviously, if you look at someone who's kind of questioned some of the things that we were just talking about here, uh, Ramit's a major factor oh, in something like that. Ramit would hate this conversation. He would be like, don't worry about all the taxes. What are you talking about? This is crazy. <laughs> exactly. Like he would be, he would think this is such overkill. <laughs> he, he definitely would. And he's not about optimization on this kind of stuff at all whatsoever, which is funny. So when we're looking at some of this stuff, he had a major impact on me. And I know for you, you said, I've heard you talk about, you found Choose FI and then you read how to, or Ramit's book um, a little bit later on. That was a major impact on me too, was his book and just the systems that he puts into place and how he kind of simplifies all of this stuff. And really the psychology behind it, the psychology Mm -hmm. that he kind of leads with, with his dream life and all that other, or with your rich life and all that other stuff um, that he kind of goes into is really, really powerful. 
And so one cool thing about this, though, is that he has this Netflix documentary that's really trending online. And it started with, you know, Get Good With Money. If you look at Tiffany Alice and, and Paula and all yeah. them, they had their Netflix documentary. And now Ramitz is doing really, really well. So talk about kind of meeting someone who had a big impact on your career first, and then we'll kind of get into some other stuff on this. Yeah, it's so cool to watch him really skyrocket now to the top of the mountaintop in a more mainstream way, because I think amongst the personal finance community, he's already kind of a rock star and considered like the tippy top. And you see his philosophy in so many of the new guard, yourself, me. I think about all the people that are kind of leading the charge in this generation, the younger millennials, I'll say, or those a little bit younger than Ramit, who you really can just feel how much they've been impacted by him because we all say very similar things that he was kind of the first to introduce this, like, you know, focus on the $30,000 questions, not the $3 questions. That one comes to mind. And same with this idea of the amount of money you have in the bank is highly uncorrelated to your feelings about money. There are so many things that he has introduced that have really, they've had a lot of staying power. So it was pretty surreal to meet him in person. But more than that, it's just been really cool to watch now that he's 20 years into his career, how far he's really taken it and just the consistency that it takes. But like, look at him now. It's the number six show on Netflix. It's positively impacting, I'm sure, millions of people that have probably never thought about personal finance that critically before that are now thinking about their money in a new way. And I think it says a lot about the cultural moment that we're in, too, that money is something that can have a hit TV show on Netflix. And it's really exciting. I think it's cool that this is happening for him. And I'm just so happy to see someone that I think is very deserving. And it really just has their messaging and their philosophy so incredibly locked in to watch that come to fruition at scale is amazing. Exactly. And it's one of the things where people listening, if you've never heard of Ramit or if you've never read his book or anything like that, he was the original person who kind of thought through, hey, why don't we start spending our money on our values instead of mm -hmm. spending it, you know, just kind of cutting back and spending, cutting out coffees and lattes yeah. and all that other kind of stuff where he would kind of challenge those conventional wisdom types of things that were in play back then. I mean, he's been doing it now for over 20 years, which is yeah. amazing. It feels like it's been flying by, but he's just got all those original philosophies. You can see it kind of oozing through, like you said, the millennial generation, a lot of people that are up and coming now mm -hmm. because of his original philosophies that he had there. So Obviously, this show is now trending on Netflix. It is, you know, in the top 10. It's been there for a while now. So why is it so important, in your opinion, for a personal finance show to be trending on Netflix? Yeah, well, because I think that's how most people who don't have an innate curiosity about these things, that's how they find information. Like, I remember I've seen things on Netflix that otherwise, if it had not caught my eye and hadn't been packaged in such an entertaining way, I would have never learned about it. Things like health and fitness and diet. I've seen some really fascinating documentaries on Netflix about those things. Those are not things that I would typically just think to go research on my own because I don't care that much. But when they were positioned that way, it's like, oh, wow. It's almost like a Trojan horse for the information or history. I'm not going to sit there and go Google the aftermath of 9-11 and what the U.S. government did. But now I know a ton about it because I've seen amazing documentaries on Netflix about it. So I think 
it's super important because for all my blind spots, personal finance might not be one of them. That might be the area where I'm curious enough to go look it up myself. But it's an incredibly important thing that is a blind spot for a lot of people. And so if it is the Trojan horse that kind of introduces it to you and gets you interested and gets you thinking about these things so that you feel comfortable enough to go deeper, I think it's going to have a really lasting impact. Absolutely. And I think it is so important. One of the cool things about this is that you get to see real people's finances and you and I get to see this probably all day long. We get DMs all the time from people, you know, asking specific questions Mm -hmm. and they talk about their finances in those DMs. But at the same time, it is so fascinating to see it kind of play out in their faces and how it kind of works through that when you kind of watch the documentary. So that is one thing that I think a lot of people came back to me and said, I cannot believe how little some of these people know about personal finance. And at the same time, there are so many people in that same boat. They're trying to learn how this stuff works. And that's Mm -hmm. why you and I do what we do to try to teach as many people as possible. And so we can bring as much value to their lives as possible, reduce their stress and anxiety around money, all those different things. So why is it so important for other people to see this as well? I think regardless of how much you know or don't know, like a lot of the topics that were covered were very remedial. I mean, or rudimentary rather. But I think what was really powerful as someone that does think about this stuff all the time is watching how Ramit is able to get people to come to their own conclusions. He's not ramming these things down anyone's throat. He's not giving them the answer. He's just really good at asking questions in a way that gets people to arrive at the conclusions he wants them to so that they feel And they are making the decisions and feeling and believing them those things themselves. And I think that even if you yourself are amazing with money and you already know everything you need to know, chances are there are people in your life who are not. And maybe you've tried to help them in the past. And as as anyone has ever known who's ever tried to help someone with money, a lot of the time it's like, nope, don't want to hear it. Don't care. Don't want to know. Like this is not, I'm going to maintain willful ignorance because it is too scary to think about. I think there's a lot to be gained from just watching his communication style, very non-judgmental, watching the way he is patient and the way that he's able to form these questions so they don't feel accusatory, but just to bring people along very gently. And I think that there's a lot to be gained from that too. So whether you know nothing about money and you're trying to, you're going to get something out of it. If you know a lot about money, but you're trying to help people in your life, you're going to get something out of it. That is so true. And I remember even in college when we, uh, I would talk to my friends about money all the time and they had no interest in it whatsoever. I'd be talking to them at a party yeah. about index funds or something along those lines and they would absolutely hate it. And now they're super obviously- Super fun at parties. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm super fun. It's it's the best. Uh, and now my favorite party trick is to get my four-year-old to tell people what an asset and a liability is every single oh day. So it's funny. <laughs> but um, but that, that's kind of one of the things where a lot of people don't want to hear. But when you put it into this context, if you put it mm-hmm. in this situation, in this style, I think it's actually really fun to kind of watch all this stuff play out. And the beautiful thing, like you mentioned, is that he almost puts psychology first. So he's obviously, I think he has a degree in psychology. And so he utilizes that to kind of ask the right questions. And he's so incredibly patient to wait until they kind of give the answer and kind of find that answer themselves. Mm -hmm. Because I think it really does help people when you ask those questions in that way. So it's a really, really powerful way to kind of go through this process. And I think if anybody hasn't seen that documentary yet, it's definitely worth a watch for sure. It's called How to Get Rich on Netflix. It's an awesome documentary and kind of going through and kind of seeing some these people's lives is really, really entertaining. So that's Mm -hmm. another piece of that as well. So Katie, I want to shift gears here. These are some questions that we like to ask a lot of our guests and they go a little deeper than some of the stuff that we were just asking now, obviously, but this is going to be a fun one. So what part of your work or life makes you come alive? 
Ooh, writing. I love writing. So when I get an idea, whether it's from listening to someone else's show or reading a book, or I mean, I get ideas from everywhere, but when I feel like I have a really good idea and then I just get in the zone and I go total flow state and the time just like disappears. It really does come out in your newsletter. If you guys aren't subscribed to to Katie's newsletter, it is a fantastic read every single week. It comes out once a week, right? Yes. Every Wednesday. Perfect. So we'll link that up in the show notes down below too. So you guys can check that out. What is your biggest fear when it comes to money? (sighs) Okay. If I'm being honest, I have two. One is behavioral and one is economic. So behaviorally, as I've made more money, I have spent more. Like lifestyle creep has been a very real thing in my life. And in some ways, I think that that's okay. Like I think you should reward yourself for working really hard. And when your hard work comes to fruition, absolutely. I mean, life is short. You don't get to take the biggest pile of money with you when you die, right? So I think that it is okay within reason. But sometimes I do worry that okay, I got to be really, really careful that I don't allow my lifestyle to expand to fit my new income such that my ability to reach financial freedom is delayed or that, okay, now I need so much more money to support this in retirement because I allowed things to scale up because that hedonic treadmill, you're never going to win. So I think that worries me a little bit because my I can see my own human nature and my wheels turning of like, oh, well, I'm going to get a new car. Well, I could afford this nice car now. So should I get it? And it's like, oh God, I can like, you got to beat down that impulse. Right. So that's one thing that scares me about myself. And then the external thing that scares me, I think, is just that all of the projections that we have about the stock market are based on really the last hundred years. And the last hundred years have been a time of U.S. hegemonic dominance. Things have gone really well for the United States on a global scale in the last hundred years. And so I think when we make these projections moving forward, it worries me that if the next hundred years look different, that we could get underwhelming returns and that a lot of these things that we bank on as being kind of a sure thing might not come to pass. And that really scares me because I have no control over that. So like we talked about individual solutions and exerting control in your arena of influence, what I've done to kind of make myself feel better about that is diversify far beyond just the S&P 500. So I do invest in other companies in the US like small cap value and mid cap. I invest in emerging markets. I invest in developed markets. I try to find like, okay, how can I make sure that really no matter what happens, as long as some economy somewhere does well, I own some of it. And that has helped me a lot with being able to sleep at night and that, you know, I'm not overexposed or putting all my eggs in the US basket. But I do think that at the end of the day, the US markets are very strong. They're huge. They're well-regulated. The US economy, I think, is one to bet on. I'm not sure if it'll be the exact same as the last hundred years, but I think um, it's still one of the safest bets that I feel comfortable making. But I'd say that is probably my biggest fear is that what if everything kind of goes sideways for the rest of my life? You just never know. Those are both two very valid fears. That those are things that I think about a lot, especially when it comes to the lifestyle creep one is a big one for me. I've had YNAB for like 10 or 12 years, and oh, that's yeah. kind of the budgeting tool that I've used oh, for a very man. long time. You look back on those early years and you're like, oh, how did I do that? Like, we've exactly. gotten so far. If I want to get depressed, I go back and look at what I had originally, which is like the <laughs> worst thing in the world. But it's just one of those things where I think about that all the time. I probably have 10 Amazon boxes at my front door right now that yeah. I've probably spent too much on. So, like, it's one of those things where, like, I always am trying to think about that and kind of consciously go through that. So, that's a big one for me, too, is just mm-hmm. kind of controlling those 
impulses because it's one of those things where obviously you want to enjoy your money and put it towards what you value. But at the same time, I want to make sure that I actually value it. So it's kind of one of those as I think through that. The next one is how do you plan on leveling up your finances this year? Man, so for me, the cheat code has been earning more. And I know that that sounds so dumb, but I think there's like a diminishing uh, return on like tweaking the system. You know, you can, oh, I'm going to, you know, tweak my asset allocation this much or like, ah, I'm going to open a new high yield savings account that gets 4% instead of 3%. Like those things are going to help, make no mistake. You're going to get some marginal utility out of those decisions. But I kind of found that once I got my system locked in where it was like, all right, load up the pre-tax accounts first, hit the Roth accounts, everything overflow goes in the taxable and then spend under this much per month and, you know, just try to make that the upper limits that the save rate is somewhere in the 75% range. Like once you get to that point, I found that it was like, all right, the one high leverage thing I can do now, the biggest ROI that I can now make with my energy is finding ways to increase my income and expanding my luck surface area, if you will, of how can I expose myself to more opportunities and make sure that I'm working on the highest leverage things that are going to have the highest payoffs, both psychologically, emotionally, the things I'm really interested in, but also financially. The beautiful thing is that often those two things are the same. Like if you are really engaged, it's probably going to end up having a lucrative outcome for you. I've found at least in business, but I think that focusing on how can we just keep turning up that dial and keep putting more money into this system that's working well, that's kind of been my play. And for a while, I thought I was going to start investing in real estate, but this is just not historically a great time. Like I cannot get the numbers to work. And I think that that's something that I'll do in the future. But for this point in time, and the business that I have now and the opportunities and some of the people I'm meeting like yourself, it's just it's become obvious to me that this is the arena of life that like makes the most sense to really pour the energy into. Absolutely. And you're speaking my language right now, because what we talk about in this podcast all the time is kind of get your system together, automate that system, Mm -hmm. and then focus on increasing that income. Because the income portion of that whole equation is the thing that's going to solve a lot of your problems when it comes to money, especially when you really, really need to grow that income. And once as your income grows, you could just kind of add more fuel to the fire every time you do this. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you on the real estate side, too. I've been investing in real estate since 2016 or 17. I haven't been able to get the numbers to work for like three years. So it's one of those things where it's really difficult, especially in my Area, unless I want to go to like Toledo, Ohio or something like that and invest out of state. That's one of those things where it's kind of thinking through this stuff and kind of trying to get those numbers to work. I may go out of mm-hmm. state eventually, but we'll kind of see there too. I think you're right. Right now, that's kind of the best thing to kind of focus on um, as you go through this process. Yeah. So the next one is what is the best money advice you've ever received? Oh, that's a good question. The best money. I think I'm going to throw it back to the Ramit quote, which is the amount of money you have in the bank is highly uncorrelated with how you feel about money. When I got my first starting salary, I felt richer than God. I was like, I have so much money. And now I have way more money and make way more money than I did back then. And I worry about it more than I did back then, because back then I was just ignorant and I didn't know any better. So I think that that is a very important reminder that I I truly tell myself every single day. They surveyed people with I want to say it was like 500,000, a million, 2 million, 3 million, 4 million, 5 million dollars. They said, "How much money does it take to feel free?" Every single group said double whatever they had. 
So like if you had a million, you said, I need 2 million. People that had 2 million said, oh, you need four. People that had three says you needed six. Like, and it was true across every level. So I think defining what is enough for you and getting really honest with yourself up front. Because I think when I started and I was lean fi like yourself, my fi number was 750K. Well, that's in the rear view now, right? And it's nowhere. Now I'm like, no, now I need 3 million. So I think that there's a balance there of you want to make sure that when you're calculating those numbers, you are really confident that the lifestyle that that's going to enable you to live is the lifestyle that you could live forever. Yeah, I could make 750K work when I was spending $2,000 a month as a single 24-year-old, but like, that's not the lifestyle I have anymore. That's not the life I want to live. And if I were honest with myself back then, I probably would have known that back then too. So I think uh, your money can do a lot of things for you. It cannot make you psychologically impervious to things that are bigger than money, like fear and purpose and happiness. You can't ask money to do those things for you. It can do a lot, but it can't do that. Exactly. And like you're saying, like as life develops, the goalpost kind of moves. For me, when it really started to move was when I started to have kids and my wife and I were kind of going uh, that through that process. And once I, I haven't had kids. Had kids. <laughs> Exactly. That's kind of like another moment where it happened for me. Yeah. So it was kind of like I had that lean ambition and then all of a sudden it kind of moved over to, to fat fire because there's just a lot more things I want to do when that happens. And now there's, you know, there's, I want to give a lot more too. So that was another mm-hmm. factor that kind of increased that amount as we went through the process. Yeah. But that goalpost moves and it's kind of natural for that to happen, but really kind of nailing down the range where you want to be is very, very important just because you got to be able to have that goal in place. Otherwise you could start to fall and trickle behind if you don't have that goalpost in the right spot. So the last one is my favorite question, and it is one that uh, we've asked every guest in this podcast, whether they're a personal finance person or they're not. And we get some interesting answers on this. So what does wealth mean to you? What does wealth mean to me? I feel like the most common answer you probably get is freedom or like time freedom. I think wealth to me is security. And I think that if I were to be really honest about why I have fallen so deeply down this rabbit hole... It's because it represents to me the ability to never be stuck and the security that within reason you're going to be okay and that you're going to be able to fix most of the problems that come your way because most things in life are money responsive. So someone who is very wealthy and someone who is not, if both of them receive the same health diagnosis, I can tell you which person has a better shot because we have a system in this country where the amount of money you have determines the kind of healthcare you can receive, which again, all of this kind of comes back to like, it's figuring out where the system is broken and acknowledging that. And then also figuring out, okay, but this is the system I have to live in and this is what I have to work with. So what can I control? Right? So I think for me, it's security and just knowing that I'm giving myself the best shot at living a good life and living a dignified life. And hopefully to your point about giving, helping other people to live a dignified life too. I mean, I would love to see the wealth gap close before I die. I hate that there is a gender or race wealth gap. I think that that's absurd. I think that we can close that. We should close it. I would love to see things like universal healthcare happen before I die. I think it's insane that like if you're poor and you get cancer, it's kind of game over for you because you're not going to be able to do anything about it. Those are all things that like I would love to see changed and improved. And I think when you have a platform and you have money, you have a lot of influence over those things, more influence than you probably realize. And so 
on the personal level, it's security, but for myself, and I think at the platform level, it's security for other people. I love that answer because I think for a lot of people, one of their biggest stresses in life and one of their biggest causes of anxiety is their money. And if Mm -hmm. you can kind of figure out that problem, it's obviously one of the the leading causes of divorce and all these other things. If you can figure out that problem, it's going to reduce your stress and anxiety in that area. Obviously, there's going to be stress in other areas. But when it comes to money, if you can reduce that, it obviously increases happiness overall Mm -hmm. um, because you can reduce some of those stresses and some of the anxiety. And I love that because I think originally one thing that when we started this podcast, one thing that I thought about as we did that was was just thinking about somebody finding this who is in a really poor environment and they just found this podcast Mm. randomly in some way, shape or form. My goal was to kind of teach that person from point A to point Z how they could actually build wealth and kind of change their family's financial tree. And so that's the cool thing that you and I get to do now is kind of have that platform to be able to kind of teach people how this stuff actually works. So it's a very, very cool way to kind of go forward with that as well. So Katie, this was absolutely amazing. It was a wonderful conversation. I know everybody's going to love this one. So tell us where people can find more about you and what you have going on, the Money with Katie show and everything else. Yeah, this was a pleasure. Thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, even though I got to do most of the talking. So sorry, Andrew. But you can find me at Money with Katie on Instagram and Twitter. You can find me at The Money with Katie Show, wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube, particularly if you're a podcast person, I think you're going to like it. And moneywithkatie.com. That's where we post all of our blogs, where we have all of our free resources. A lot of our content lives there and our little email series that you can sign up for majority of it is free and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter there as well like andrew alluded to amazing well thank you so much for coming on we're going to link all of those down in the show notes below so if you guys want to check those out make sure you do because it is absolutely amazing i love everything that katie puts out so we will uh, Thanks, link all andrew. those down in the show notes below so that you can access some of those as well katie thank you so much again thank you Everyone's heard the saying, you have to spend money to make money, but everything in life from travel to starting a business is expensive, which is why I want to tell you about a new podcast I love that will teach you all the tactics, tricks, and tips you need to upgrade your life, money, and even travel all while spending less and saving more. It's called All the Hacks, and it's a top-ranked show hosted by my good friend, Chris Hutchins a financial optimizer, an entrepreneur who's racked up millions of points, and he sold two companies. And if you want to rethink the way you're spending money, you have to check out the episode 91 with Bill Perkins and why you should be optimizing for net fulfillment and not net worth and striving to die with zero. All the Hacks has something for everyone, and I'm sure you'll find a new tactic that you can apply to your own life, whether it's a money hack that increases your net worth or a routine change that boosts your productivity. So check out All the Hacks. That's All the Hacks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your wallet will thank you later.